Hi there, and welcome to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab. My name is Renny Tyson Moore, and I will be your host for today as we bring you the third episode from our Whale Pod series. If you've listened to our series before, you may remember that these episodes are produced by students attending the summer session of the Marine Mammal Science and Conservation course that I teach through the Duke University Marine Lab. In just six short weeks, the students choose a marine mammal conservation or management issue as the focus of their episode, find and interview experts in marine mammal science about their chosen topic, and then draft, edit, and produce the podcast episodes, all while also attending to other assignments, readings, field trips, and lectures, as well as any other fun summer plans or responsibilities they may have. For me, this assignment was a bit of an experiment. I was tired of having students work so hard all summer just to write a term paper that in the end would really only be read by me. I've always enjoyed podcasts, so I had the idea that a podcast would be a fun way for the students to both demonstrate what they learned through the course, but also share what they learned about these species and communicate the issues surrounding their conservation with a broader audience, a skill that is so very important in marine mammal science and conservation. In addition, with everything going virtual this summer, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, I thought that this may just be the perfect opportunity for students to connect virtually with experts in marine mammalogy from around the world that we would not normally get to interact with. I have to say, I'm very happy with the results, and I'm even happier that we get to share them here with you today as part of the Whale Pod series on Seas Today. This week's episode focuses on man-made sound in the ocean, and how it affects marine mammals, including the largest animal to have ever lived on Earth, the blue whale. It was produced in the summer of 2020 by Duke undergraduate students Rand Alatavi, Lauren Mahoney, and Medina Mustafa. In this episode, the students speak with Jeannie Shearer, Nicola Quick, and Doug Nowacek, scientists from the Duke University Marine Lab, about this issue and explore the way scientists, such as those at Duke, are working to study the effects of sound on marine mammals. We hope you enjoy this week's installment of Seize the Day, Whale Pod Style. In today's episode, we will be focusing on the largest animal ever known to live on Earth, the blue whale, otherwise known as Balinoptera musculus. Current predictions of the world stock lie at an estimated 10 to 25,000 total whales, and they can be found in all major oceans other than the Arctic, seasonally migrating great distances between summer feeding grounds and the poles and winter breeding grounds near the equator. But with such a wide range of dispersal can come extreme difficulties in planning and successfully conducting conservation efforts for these whales. These gigantic marine mammals weigh in at 441,000 pounds and have been recorded at lengths of over 100 feet long. Because of their size and stature, one would think that these gentle giants are nearly invincible. And for roughly 4.5 million years, blue whales were able to roam the oceans relatively unharmed. But as human development started to grow, blue whales began to face potentially lethal disruption from human activity. At the turn of the 20th century, blue whale populations were nearly wiped out by commercial whaling fleets seeking whale oil from their blubber. Luckily, worldwide protection was granted to blue whales with the whaling ban in 1967. But in the nearly 65 years before the ban, more than 350,000 blue whales were killed in the Southern Hemisphere, wiping out nearly 99% of the population. Despite the ban, blue whales still remain endangered, as issues such as vessel strikes and whale entanglement pose serious threats. 
Additionally, climate change has been leading to a decline in krill population, a main prey for blue whales. However, what we hope to discuss in this episode is the rising concerns surrounding acoustic disturbance and blue whale behavior. Previous studies have shown that anthropogenic, a term meaning man-made, ocean noise can induce a variety of behavioral changes in blue whales that affect things such as their feeding patterns, swimming speeds, call production, and direction of travel, especially during deep dives. Today we will be interviewing three experts on this topic, Jeannie Shearer, Nicola Quick, and Doug Nowacek. Jeannie Shearer is a PhD student in the Nicholas School of the Environment, pursuing a degree in ecology in the Reed Lab for Conservation Biology. One of the projects Shearer is currently working on looks at how humpback whales alter their behavior around ships using data collected from digital acoustic tags, also known as D-tags, and observational methods. In an interview with Jeannie Shearer, she helped provide us with a clearer understanding of the types and sources of man-made noises afflicting blue whales, as well as how they're increasing each year. We talked about the military sonar, which is one of the big ones and one that gets a lot of media attention, mm -hmm. which is definitely a big source of anthropogenic noise and one that mm -hmm. we are concerned about. But there's a lot of other types of anthropogenic noise that also has an effect on marine mammals, and those can include the seismic air guns that are used for oil and gas surveys, Ship noise is a huge issue, and that comes from commercial shipping as well as recreational and whale watch boats. And then you have things like construction, like pile driving for docks and for wind farms and things like that. So there's a lot of sources of anthropogenic noise, and the oceans are steadily getting louder mm -hmm. every decade. And so it's really affecting marine mammals more and more, and it's changing rapidly. So the oceans are getting louder every year. Is that just from an increase in like shipping and drilling for oil and stuff? Is that why they're getting louder? Yeah, a lot of it is the increase in shipping just over the last century, how many more massive cargo ships we have transiting, particularly the Northern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Southern Hemisphere is a little bit quieter, but you can just, from some studies that they've done where they've had recorders out and just measuring the noise level, they can mm -hmm. see changes over the decades, especially in that like, low frequency band that the ships operate in. Is that like a consistent noise in the background now? Or are there kind of like um, hot spots or like times of the year where it gets louder? I'm not sure if there's different times of the year, but certainly it's not evenly spread through all the oceans because the ships tend to stay in shipping routes. So they'll, especially mm -hmm. like along the coast, they'll follow the same shipping channels and those areas will be really loud and probably pretty consistently loud. And then further offshore, you'll have less frequent times, but it still increases the overall noise level and there's sounds that can travel for hundreds of kilometers, so mm -hmm. it will increase noise level even pretty far away from where they're at. With all of these different sources of human-caused noise in the ocean occurring simultaneous, and while ambient, or background, noise levels are consistently rising each year, one can imagine the various effects they have on blue whales and other marine mammals in general. Unlike on land, light doesn't travel very far in the ocean, and marine mammals have to be more reliant on sound and acoustic cues rather than visual ones. Because of this, blue whales are very specialized in their vocalizations and hearing abilities. By emitting pulses, groans, and moans, blue whales can communicate with each other even while they are up to a thousand miles away. Jeannie explained how anthropogenic noise has been observed affecting how blue whales communicate. The large baleen whales, your humpbacks and your blue whales, they communicate in a pretty low frequency band and we think they're probably pretty well specialized in that lower frequency. 
and they use sound for their long range communication. I mean, they're also communicating over several miles with each other. Mm -hmm. So that noise that's in that same band as their communication can mask their calls and their feeding sounds and all of that. So they have to change the way they're communicating in order to be heard. Mm -hmm. And then your Adonis seeds, your tooth whales, like your dolphins and your killer whales and pilot whales, they're using echolocation, which is much higher frequency. It's probably not quite as affected by like shipping noise. So like humans are visual for the most part, like we tend to rely on a lot of visual cues, but because light attenuates so fast in water, you don't have to get very deep before you have very little light. And some marine mammals tend to use sound. They're much more specialized for sound than they are for vision. And so anything that would probably not bother us as much because we're not as acoustic is going mm -hmm. to bother them a lot more because that's what they rely on for feeding and for communicating and traveling and everything. So with the larger baleen whales, you said that it's kind of affecting their vocalizations and how they're communicating with each other. In what ways are they communicating less because they can't really hear each other or are they trying to get louder to go over that noise? Yeah, there's been several studies on this and it seems like it depends on the species and what kind of sound it is. With sonar, a lot of the animals will stop calling during sonar events, but like during ship noise, blue whales increase the number of calls. Humpbacks will sometimes call louder if there's a lot of noise, but sometimes they'll switch from calling to different forms of communication, like they'll hit the surface with their flukes or, some, or tail, and like those types of communications travel farther. So it may be that they're changing from a sound that they can't hear over long distances to a better sound. And then like right whales will change the frequency of their calls. So they're moving them higher out of that noise band so that they can be heard in a different band. So pretty much all of those like different call rates, different call frequencies and making them louder. They've documented those. But in most cases, it seems like if the noise gets too loud, then they just stop and wait. Lucia DiOrio and collaborators further explain this idea in their 2009 article, Exposure to Seismic Survey Alters Blue Whale Acoustic Communication, published in Biology Letters. When blue whales were exposed to anthropogenic noise from a seismic survey using low-medium power technology, they were found to call consistently more in comparison to when seismic surveys were not being conducted. Mariana Malcon and colleagues looked at a similar topic in their 2012 article, Blue whales respond to anthropogenic noise, published in PLOS One. Their paper examines behavioral response to ship noise, and within the study, the researchers found that blue whales are more likely to increase calling as well, while ship noise levels are high. The calls being made by blue whales are often heard during social encounters and feeding, so the increase in calling is likely a behavior to overcompensate for the elevated ambient noise levels from seismic surveys and ship noise much like we would raise our voices if we were trying to talk to a friend while a noisy train passed. Not only are vocalization behaviors affected by anthropogenic noise, but foraging behaviors are also altered. A 2013 study conducted by Jeremy Goldvogel and colleagues titled Blue Whales Respond to Simulated Mid-Frequency Military Sonar and published in Proceedings of the Royal Society looked into how blue whales react when subjected to noise levels that are magnitudes below the sonar sound the Navy uses. Despite the sounds being gentler, the researchers found that whale behavior, especially the foraging, is affected by that noise. The whales who can usually dive up to 315 meters for foraging 
abruptly stopped their deep dives and instead settled for diving in midwaters since they were actively trying to get away from the noise source this could negatively impact the whales by affecting the amount of krill they feed on which is tons considering the blue whale size Jeannie confirms the findings of this study yeah for most of these for both sonar and ship noise often causes most marine mammals to stop foraging. Some things like sonar will cause them to change their dive behavior, like traveling away from the sound or doing shallower dives or deeper dives, depending on the species, but they will change dive behaviors. But yeah, a lot of animals will stop feeding during high noise events. It's become clear that anthropogenic noise has a significant effect on blue whales. Whether that's through chronic stress responses or altered behaviors, anthropogenic noises are harming marine mammals. To help provide a better explanation of how we can imagine what experiencing these noises may be like underwater, Jeannie Shearer provides a very clear analogy. The best thing that I could think of would be like if you were in a grocery store and you're shopping for food for yourself and your family and all of a sudden all the lights go out and a fire alarm goes off. Well, if you knew what a fire alarm was, you probably wouldn't totally panic, but if you've never heard a fire alarm, you don't know what it is, you don't know what's going on, you might panic, you might run in any direction, you might run into something, you might not run towards a door, you might run towards the back, like you might have this completely panicked reaction to something that you're not familiar with. And the other thing with a lot of these whales, like particularly beaked whales, are pretty skittish anyway, like they're prey animals to things like killer whales. And so their response to anything threatening seems to be to run away from it. Kind of like the fight or flight response, they are flight animals. It seems like they're treating these sonar sounds like it was a predator sound, and the best response to that is to get away as quickly as mm -hmm. possible. Wow, can you imagine that? I can't see how someone wouldn't respond in a panicked way to an experience like that. I agree. That sounds terrifying. So how do we study the effects of sonar on whales in a controlled way without subjecting them to these painful and scary noises, and also ensuring that no harm is caused to them? Nicola Quick helps us understand that. Nicola is a research scientist at Duke University Marine Lab and an honorary research scientist within the School of Biology at the University of St. Andrews. That behavior response study we did in the Bahamas um, with the military, with the US military at one of their Navy ranges, um, was one of the first sort of full-scale experimental approaches to try and test some theories about what might happen when animals are exposed. The 2017 study Nicola is addressing is titled Mitigation of Harm During a Novel Behavior Response Study Involving Active Sonar and Wild Cetaceans. The aim of it was to come up with a control exposure experiment to show the effects sonar has on whales, but without causing harm to the animals. The study was conducted after the infamous 2000 mass stranding of beaked whales in the Bahamas. What baffled many by that incident was the mysterious reason that drove 17 whales to leave the safety of the Grand Bahama Canyon that they called home for the past 30 million years and instead flee to the beaches to die. Eventually, that was linked to Navy sonar practices. That, that study was the first one to sort of try and take this idea of wild animals and doing a controlled exposure. So we know what the resource level is, so we can determine what the receive level is. We know where the whale is, and we know what the animal's doing beforehand, because we've got people watching it, and we can put tags on the animal to see, so we can try and assess any changes. The tags Nicola mentioned are called D-tags, and these tags were designed to record the sound and movement of marine mammals. With any study like this, you should be mindful of the ethical 
considerations of these of any study with live animals. Anything that involves interacting with live animals is probably having some sort of effect. We had a very strong mitigation strategy for that project to ensure that there was no harm to the whales. So including multiple levels of sort of mitigation in terms of making sure everyone was very clear on the steps. That if something happened, then everything stopped. Or we would make sure we followed up using different methods for a number of days afterwards. So yeah, I mean, the ethics is the forefront of what we do. We have to get permits for everything we do. And we have to be very, very mindful of having very strict protocols before these experiments take place. And how would you measure the harm caused to the animals? That's a good question, because harm's a very subjective quality, right? In terms of individuals, you can measure things like whether they stop foraging, and whether you think a reduction in foraging is a, a direct harm to the individual. Receive level on the animal is obviously very important to make sure you're not putting a noise into the environment that could completely damage their hearing systems. We are very careful in our exposure experiments that we start off with sounds that are way below what the threshold for causing any hearing damage may be. All the animals in the populations that we study, we have pretty good long-term photo ID effort. So that those whales in the Bahamas that were first exposed, there's an NGO group in the Bahamas that have recited that animal multiple years since the exposures. But obviously it's a long process and any experiment with animals, you can't guarantee that there's not going to be some level of detrimental effect if you're doing something so unknown. It's a balance. Doug Nowacek is a professor at Duke University and the head of the Nowacek Bioacoustics and Engineering Lab. Recently, Nowacek has been working alongside the US Navy to better understand how varying levels of sonar exposure can affect whale behavior, including the blue whale. Well, you guys, you worked alongside the US Navy to understand levels of sonar behavior. So what did you guys do for that? Well, we were just out last week, actually, on the new Duke research boat, the RV Shearwater. And that project, we were just offshore North Carolina, about 35, 40 miles out of Oregon Inlet, so straight out from Cape Hatteras, basically. A lot of these response studies have focused either on the very short-term responses, you know, on the order of minutes to hours, and others have focused on the longer-term days to weeks and using slightly different devices to do that. To get a pretty good grip on the problem, we need both. And so that's what we proposed for this project. So we have a combination of longer term tags, which have more coarse resolution. So they may sample, the, at, at their fastest, they sample diving behavior or you know depth once every five minutes. Whereas the high resolution devices sample 200 times a second. So anyway, in, in this project, so we go out and we put some of those longer term tags on. And then ideally we find the animals on the day of the experiment and put one of the shorter term tags on. Uh, and then we work with the Navy and we, through a series of connections, have contact with an actual ship. And we give them a position and a heading once we know where the main focus animals are. And then we run some propagation models so we know about how loud it's gonna be at the location of each animal so we don't get too much dose on them, so they don't yeah. get too much sound. And then the ship goes there, takes the heading, goes for an hour, turns on its sonar, and we're watching, recording, doing all that. And then the ship takes off and we follow up and follow the animals around. So what we're really looking for are things like, is feeding significantly interrupted during that time? So they have some strong energetic response that would cost them a lot of energy. 
Are there changes in the social structure? We know precious little about the social structure of Cuvier's beaked whales, for example. But on a couple of occasions now, we have had the group structure change quite significantly upon the exposure. NOAA checks research also brings to light the long-lasting issues of seismic testing and fears that they may mask marine mammals' underwater communications. Seismic airgun surveys are the loudest sound that people put in the ocean on a routine basis. So the only thing louder really are explosions that they use to test the integrity of ships and things that they call ship shock trials, and those are actual full-on big explosions. But airgun surveys are a series of controlled explosions. So they're these guns, these airguns that are probably about a meter long, and they put 20 or 30 of them in an array, and they send highly compressed air down to those guns. On an electronically timed signal, the stopcock opens and releases this highly compressed bubble of air. And when it gets into the environment, it expands rapidly, right? Because it's so compressed. And then when it collapses on itself, it makes this huge impulsive sound. And it's important to note that that's the sound that they want, that initial bang. They are an effective tool for what they are meant to do, which is to explore the bottom and the substructure for oil and gas. But those intense pulses, each one of which, again, is the loudest single sound we put into the water routinely, those are shot off every 10 to 15 seconds 24 hours, seven days a week for weeks or months at a time. So there are a couple things. One is the impulse itself. If animals are close, it can injure them for sure. The chances of that are relatively small. The bigger issue is the amount of sound energy that puts into the environment that continues to reverberate. And we've been able to hear it as much as 4,000 kilometers away on bottom mounted sensors from surveys going on halfway across the ocean. So what we worry about for the animals are masking, the sounds covering up their own signals. And then if the animals are in an area of intense surveys, the, the stress level of being in a, in a loud sound field is a real, a real concern. There are also documented reports of changing singing behavior in large whales. Fin whales in the Mediterranean actually moved well out of an area where there was a seismic survey while they were singing. And importantly there for your thought process is one of the rationales for what some people call mitigation is they say, well, the animals just move away. Then they're not nearly as much in harm's way. But the point is that in many, many cases, animals are where they are for a reason. And so just because they move somewhere else doesn't mean that it's the same quality of habitat mm -hmm. as where they were when the trouble started. I'll also say at this point, there, you know, there are studies out there on, on a variety of species that show little to no effect of mm -hmm. seismic. And I think it's important to keep those things in mind. It's not all bad news. Noah Czech has even testified in Congress to try and prevent a series of seismic surveys that were set to take place off the east coast of the U.S. Yes, yeah, so this was a hearing held, and to be very honest, it was a hearing held by the Republicans to try to pave the way for doing seismic surveys off the Atlantic coast. And so I was invited by the Democrats, by the minority. And yeah, it was pretty fascinating. I mean, I, I went in and talked generally about the impact of noise on mammals and actually started off... <laughs> with a story about when the writers of the US Constitution, they had a bunch of sand or soil or who knows, maybe even manure brought in and put on the roads because it was too loud outside the convention center for them to mm -hmm. concentrate on their work. <laughs> so it was pretty fascinating because the questions were, as we call softballs, they're just sort of lobbing them up for the industry folks to answer and make it look like the sounds were, you know, really not a problem at all. And it was a fascinating experience for sure. And that, you know, what they do is they just ignore you. They just don't ask questions because they don't want to hear what I have to say.
Following his work with the Navy and his struggle to sway Congress against seismic testing, Dr. Nowacek has continued to advocate for marine mammals and has published a series of papers underlying the impacts of anthropogenic noise. Within these papers, Nowacek also sets out a variety of potential management plans that may help prevent cetaceans and their varying forms of communication and echolocation from being entirely masked by increased noise pollution. So you've published one or two papers about focusing on the impacts of seismic surveys and ideas for managing them. Yeah. So can you talk about more or possible ways to mitigate these issues? There are a couple ways. One is that you look for alternative sources when it comes to seismic and look for something that's less intrusive, right? Mm -hmm. Those sources are hopefully coming. Ultimately, hopefully we won't need to be trying to get oil and gas out of the ocean anyway, right? We should be getting wind out of the ocean. So when we think about things like shipping, and shipping noise, which is seismic is the loudest single source that we put in the water, but mm. shipping actually contributes much more noise to the ocean overall than any other source. So in terms of trying to manage that, there are a couple options. There are things like for shipping the International Maritime Organization, which does have guidelines for quieting ships. It came out in 2014 after quite a long effort, mostly led by the US. Interestingly, those guidelines that came out on their way through the process they were significantly reduced in terms of their effectiveness just because people didn't want to, and they also became voluntary instead of mandatory. Yeah. The other thing that's really interesting, and we raised it in the paper, I don't know if you caught it or not, but ocean noise is now officially a pollutant in the mm -hmm. eyes of the EU. The Marine Strategy Framework Directive calls yeah. it out as a pollutant. Interestingly, for those buffs of history, in terms of history of the UN Law of the Sea, which embarrassingly, of course, we have still not signed, is that there's a whole convention on pollution in the UN Law of the Sea. And that's where you get things like, you can never put oil waste in the water, but you can put organic trash in the water after you're three miles away from shore, all those things. That's all marine pollution as part of UNCLOS. There is also a clause in UNCLOS that talks about you are not allowed to discharge excessive energy into the water. And initially that was read as heat. So this was to prevent thermal pollution directly into the ocean. But from a, someone I know who was around at the time they were writing the UN Law of the Sea, they changed that to energy because they recognized that noise, that sound, could also be a pollutant. So mm -hmm. it's actually in the Law of the Sea too. The downside of the European system, of course, is the MSFD says to have good environmental status, you should minimize noise. Mm -hmm. But that leaves it to the member countries to do what they think is the best. So there are kind of a lot of options to explore. I wish we'd make more progress on this, but it's so subject to the political winds of who happens to be in charge at the moment. Two papers Doug has been involved in focus on ways to reduce ocean noise. The first, published by Noah Trek et al. in 2015 in the Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, is titled Marine Seismic Surveys and Ocean Noise, Time for Coordinated and Prudent Planning. And the second, published by Elliot et al. in 2019 in the Endangered Species Research Journal, is titled Critical information gaps remain in understanding impacts of industrial seismic surveys on marine vertebrates. These papers highlight our limited knowledge on anthropogenic noise and their effects on marine mammals, particularly cetaceans. They emphasize that moving forward, there needs to be both a policy and regulatory consensus on mitigation standards on ocean noise. Moreover, total noise introduced to the environment needs to be reduced, either by reducing areas in which certain noises, such as seismic or sonar, are authorized, capping the peak amplitude of noise that is allowed, or limiting the amount of continuous time that a noise is permitted to be produced. Although we still have a long way to go, some progress has been made. In 2016, NOAA released an Ocean Noise Strategy Roadmap, 
and also published acoustic guidelines for determining threshold levels at which noise could impact marine mammal hearing sensitivity. On a more international level, several NGOs and stakeholders made an agreement at the United Nations Ocean Conference in 2017 to commit to preventing and reducing ocean noise. I think it's become clear to see that the effects of anthropogenic noise on blue whales and other marine mammals is a very complex issue. From the varying sources, to the different effects, to the many stakeholders involved, that Jeannie Shearer helped lay out for us. Research still continues to be conducted into what kinds of stress responses are seen in blue whales because of anthropogenic noise, whether that be through the experimental methods or observational ones that Nicola Quick gave an overview of. We've seen that this kind of research can be tough to conduct, and definitive conclusions can be hard to make with the ocean being an open system and controls difficult to impose. And utilizing this research for conservationist policies can be even more difficult, as Doug Nowachuk helps us explain through his congressional testimonies. However, in recent months, with decreased human activities because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the ocean has been quieted. Cruise ships, recreational boats, and whale-watching vessels have nearly disappeared from waters, as people around the world are staying home. Coastal recreational areas are much emptier than years before, Cargo ships and commercial fishing boats are traveling at much lower rates than pre-COVID-19 ones. This sudden reduced traffic and noise pollution in the ocean is allowing scientists a unique opportunity to study blue whales in the absence of human disturbance. With this unprecedented scenario, researchers are able to record whale vocalizations, behavior, and stress levels without interference from anthropogenic background noises. Scientists may be able to compare previous data collected when ocean noise levels were high to current levels and draw more solid conclusions about the effects of anthropogenic noise on blue whales and other marine mammals. From this information, we may be able to push for stronger regulations and more protectionist policies of the endangered blue whale to ensure that they can continue to roam the oceans for generations to come. You've been listening to Seize the Day and the third episode in our Whale Pod series. Today's episode was written and produced by Rand Alataibi, Lauren Mahoney, and Medina Mustafa. Brandon Gertz edited the podcast. For more information on our podcast, visit our website, sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash Seize the Day. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Seize the Day Pod. Our theme music was written and recorded by Joe Morton. Our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. Jeffrey Pretty provides us with technical support. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend. And as always, thanks for listening.